So here we are at the coming towards the end of two whole days of practice together. Uh, happy to see that you're all still here. And it's been really lovely to have a chance to talk to some of you today in the smaller groups and to get a sense of uh, how it's going for you. And I'm really moved by the heartfulness or wholeheartedness that you're bringing to what we're engaged in, which isn't easy. So I hope you're feeling comfortable. I'm trusting that you're feeling at home enough now that if you did want to move to somewhere where you can see or hear better this evening, that you felt able to do that. If anyone wants to move themselves, you're welcome to do that. I know we get we get comfortable in our in our place. So I I wonder how it's going for you. If I saw you today, it may well have changed since I saw you and uh, how it's going for everyone else. And also how you're how you're doing in relationship to yourself on this journey. So a few people have been asking today, well, when when are we going to talk about self-compassion? And so I'm going to try to give some reflections around that uh, this evening. And just thinking about, well, where does where does that fit into this training of the heart mind that we've been speaking about? And I I love the uh, the words of the Buddha that he and I shared this morning about uh, I know of no other thing that's so uh, conducive to suffering and unhappiness as a untrained mind, and I know of no other thing that so conduces to happiness and to well-being as a well-trained mind. And so already just within this practice of learning to train these hearts and minds a little, this is the most self-compassionate thing we could possibly be doing. So it's already, it's already here. And, you know, and it's important to understand this kind of core problem that Jan I described last night of that actually at the root of all our unnecessary suffering is this ignorance, this misunderstanding of the nature of things. So not recognizing, not realizing that everything around us, all the phenomena of the world, including this thing we call myself, are the project product of conditions that are constantly changing and that we have this belief that there's something out there that will permanently satisfy me that if I get it or if I get rid of this or that then you know lasting happiness is mine and we can watch the process of our mind you know in the course of a day and just really uh, when we look at this with honesty to see that that's 
that's really not the case. You know, this, the, the, the requirements are constantly shifting. So seeing that this, this path uh, to peace is in letting go of this constant move to craving and clinging, this wanting to get things or get rid of things, which is the manifestation of this delusion in action. And at the core of this, as many of us you know, know if we're familiar with the, the terminologies of the teaching, is this understanding of anatta, or the non-self nature of things, that just as all the things are constantly changing, so this self is constantly changing. There is no solid and unchanging self. So part of the path is kind of overcoming this messed up relationship we have to the whole idea and experience of self. And at the same time, you could, you know, I, t I think it's, it feels as true as the, the first formulation about, you know, that the, the untrained mind is at the root of all our suffering. It's also to acknowledge that in our lives, our experiences, that our relationship with ourself is our most important, our longest term, most important, most impactful relationship that we have. So it's kind of as implicated in our state of happiness or suffering as, as the training of the mind itself, in a way. So what do we do with this kind of paradoxical predicament? Because a lot, a lot of practice, sort of um, traditional Dharma practitioners, when they hear people talking about teachings on self-compassion, it kind of doesn't line up in a way. And there's this question: it doesn't sort of singling out the self for extra attention somehow reinforce this uh, problematic, you know, um, sense of there being a solid self there. But the reality of our experience is that we experience a self, you know. There's an experience of selfing that happens. And that happens right up until the end of the, end of the path. As long as there's a trace of clinging or of non-understanding left, we will experience uh, the world that comes along with a sense of self. And one of the mistakes that we, people make commonly in practice is to think, well, I, I've kind of understood that, yes, the self is illusory in some ways and, you know, um, being too attached to it creates problems. So I'm just going to minimize it. You know, it's almost like we, we, work, we kind of want to get rid of the problem prematurely by minimalizing, dis dismissing uh, this sense of self. But that doesn't really work. And it's not that the Buddha kind of denied that we have this experience of self. He commonly talked about self in an ordinary and conventional way. Yeah. So it's actually through and within this experience of being an embodied, selfing living being, if you like, that the conditions for our healing, uh, and our freedom 
our healing from this existential predicament that we're in, actually, that's, this is where they're to be found. So uh, he said that the, the whole path of uh, the understanding of suffering, of liberation, is to be found within this fathom-long body. There's a, a, another teaching that I love, where it, which is also very well known, where he says to Ananda, his cousin and attendant, Ananda comes to him and he's feeling completely overwhelmed because um, the Buddha's chief disciple Sariputta has just died and Sariputta was a teacher also to Ananda and Ananda says it's as if my whole world has turned upside down, I can't see anything clearly and you know, he's, he's really kind of feeling the world's come to an end. And the Buddha talks to him and says, you know, this is, this is how things are. Things change, we lose people. And he says, in this situation, what needs to be done is to make yourself your refuge. Be an island or a refuge unto yourself. And how do you do this? By being mindful of this body, of this body and all its processes, all its feelings thoughts, emotions, of understanding the Dharma, the reality or truth as it's manifesting in this body. So last night, Yanai talked about um, the Buddha's night under the Bodhi tree where he made this determination not to stir from this place until he'd realized what was humanly possible to realize. And I find that so inspiring. And we need that quality of uh, commitment, of determination. But I was also reflecting that, you know, he made that determination at the end, end of many years of trial and error in how he related to himself in practice. So he went through this long period of really um, extreme austerities where he was pushing himself to beyond the limit of what was humanly possible. And then uh, only at the end of that did he realize actually this isn't working for me. I need to uh, lighten up. I need to stop abusing myself in this way. And he actually switched his practice to something that was much more much more gentle, much more kind, to the extent that his companions thought that he'd gone soft and gave up on him, you know. So, uh, just to emphasize this point, that this, this quality of determined striving, when we see it, you know, in that, in that image of the Buddha, it comes informed by many years, and actually, according to the traditions, many lifetimes of learning, actually, what is a skillful relationship to this business of training myself? And I think that this practice appeals to people with um, often with very high standards and with really noble ideals. You know, you're not run-of-the-mill people who've decided to come on a retreat like this. This isn't a kind of mass movement that we have happening here. It takes certain qualities in the, in the mind to want to do this. 
And often, not saying for everybody, but often those come with having very high standards for ourselves. And so there can be quite a tendency to kind of beat ourselves up, or try to beat ourselves into this uh, path of peace and happiness. So there's a, a, a much quoted, probably fake Buddha quote, or maybe it's the Dalai Lama who said it. It could be a fake Dalai Lama quote that says, there is no path to peace and happiness. Peace and happiness is the path. That's a very good one to, comp to contemplate. Yeah. And peace and happiness and beating oneself up don't kind of go together. So this this letting go of clinging, this uprooting the causes of suffering, it, it needs a willingness and a capacity to abide with a heart that's equally kind to all beings without exception. And this is how the how the qualities of loving kindness and compassion are are praised or described in the traditional text as as radiating all, in all directions to all beings without exception. And that includes this being here. So Yana and I were having a conversation earlier talking about anatta, and he said, well, what a nice way to think of it is anatta being not self or non-self. So it's maybe a way to look at it is as not just self. Yeah. And that's really a helpful, very helpful and essential truth about uh, the nature of life, the nature of this path. And I hope, you know, we've spoken to that a lot, how what we're doing here is not just having an impact on us as individuals. It's actually something that um, is for the benefit of society as a whole. There's this way in which we're really radically interconnected with one another and with the rest of the world. So you could think of anatta as being a teaching of not just self. And maybe that's more helpful than trying to prematurely kind of eradicate any sense of self from the mind. And then self-compassion, perhaps, this other piece that we can bring in, is about not just other compassion. Because very often we're culturally programmed to think of compassion as something I have for other beings in their difficulty or in their suffering. Because how is it actually for us? So I'd like you to do a little thought experiment. Just um, thinking of Maybe you, you can imagine a, a, a real situation that comes to mind, but maybe you, you concoct one. Of a good friend of yours who's met with some kind of mishap, misfortune, they, they failed in some way or they've messed something up and they're suffering over it. How do you respond to that? Yeah, this is a, a good friend of yours, not somebody who you don't like and there's some schadenfreude going on, but <laughs> if a, a really good friend of yours or your child or somebody has messed up and they're suffering over it, 
Yeah. What sort of things do you say to them? And as importantly, how do you say them? What's the tone of your voice? What kind of gestures might you use? Gestures of support. Yeah. Or even there's a feeling in the body of some, some kind of way that you might... Oh, oh, yeah, exactly. So then if you were to just let go of that one and think about a time when you've messed up or done something that, you know, you made a mistake or met with some mishap or in inverted commas failed at something, you know, even something you've did, well, some way that you've disappointed yourself in the last two days. How do you talk to yourself? What did you say to yourself? And what kind of tone do you use? And it may be because you're a skillful practitioner and you're on this path and you're a bit savvy about these things and also because you're here and you're being particularly careful and mindful that actually you weren't too harsh on yourself. But oftentimes, isn't it the case that we are much, much harder on ourselves? Yeah. How do we, how do we, how much criticism do we generally meet out on ourselves? versus to our friends. I'm not saying towards the people who annoy us, but if we're taking our, our, a good friend as the, the kind of benchmark comparison, how much more patient are we with a friend and with ourselves? How much more willing to listen are we? How do we, how do we judge them? versus how do we judge ourselves? You know, how demanding are we that they be perfect or that their body be perfect? All these things that we impose upon ourselves. So there's a research that, that suggests that about 80% 80, 80 of people are far um, kinder to others than they are to themselves. You know? And that maybe has some resonance, some echoes for you, especially if you specifically chose to come on a retreat on self-compassion. I certainly recognize that tendency in myself. And actually those habits of relating to ourselves really reinforce that sense of separateness, this fundamental delusion that um, the practice is seeking to transform or to expose, to undo. So actually, I think there's a place within this practice for paying more, not less attention to how we treat ourselves. So it's like we put a sort of frame around this question. Okay, well, how am I relating to myself? So m mindfulness, as I've said before, it take, pays a lot of attention to how, how am I meeting this experience? 
And mindful self-compassion just kind of shifts the orientation just slightly subtly. So how am I relating to the experiencer, to this arising sense of self that's impacted here? So you could say that the, the definition, a possible definition of self-compassion would be to treat ourselves with as much uh, care and kindness as we would treat uh, a close friend. Or to treat ourselves in the way that we'd like other people close to us to treat us. So what's what how could we how could we define compassion? Yeah. One of the um definition that I find helpful is the suggestion that uh compassion is what happens when a loving or a mm, I don't want to, you know, the, again, I don't want to insist on this word loving because that might not be what everybody finds most relatable, but when a loving or a friendly or a benevolent heart meets suffering and stays loving. Because often when we encounter suffering, that discomfort that arises as we resonate with an experience of suffering in ourselves or, other, or another, we do other things to try to get rid of the discomfort. So we might meet somebody who's upset over something and, you know, we go very quickly go to, I'm going to try and talk, talk you out of it, talk you out of your upsetness, sort this situation, fix the other person who's upset you, whatever. We don't pause to just acknowledge, oh, this person's upset. Yeah. Can I just be with that for a moment? Can I support them in being with that in this moment? or ourselves, you know, even just thinking about times over the last day or two where you've found yourself feeling tired or restless or out of sorts or, you know, full of um, self-doubt or anxiety. What do we do there? So the, the habitual response to that kind of thing is the stress response of fight or flight or freeze. So fight might be we'll attack ourselves for the experience that we're having. We'll kind of start berating ourselves internally. Or we'll go on the attack towards finding somebody else out there to blame. Blame the retreat. Blame the teachers. Blame the teaching. Blame the weather. Blame Gaia House. Whatever. But we go out there on, on the offensive, don't we? Or we distract ourselves and here of course we're thwarted rather in our uh, efforts to distract ourselves but there are still ways that we can distract ourselves here or we implode you know we sort of collapse around this and really kind of feel like i'm stuck here this is how it is this this experience is taking over my taking over my world in the moment what can i do So compassion is when we have one of these experiences of difficulty or we encounter one of these experiences of difficulty and we manage not to go into one of those responses. Compassion actually wants to 
soothe and support and help when we're in distress or when another's in distress. And that's different from trying to fix things because fixing things, usually there's some aversion there. I want it to go away so that I can feel better. So a good example for this is how we might relate to a child of ours or a, chi a, a child who has, has the flu. You kind of, we, know, we know that flu goes in its own time. We're not going to, you know, get magically wave a wand and get rid of the flu for them. So we take care of them. You know, we keep them warm. They, we give them plenty to drink. We comfort them. We, we try to keep them happy. Uh, but we're not trying to, we're there to help. We're there to support, but we're not, it's not our job to get rid of the flu. So this is kind of what compassion does. It recognizes when there's something practical that I can do to help, but it also recognizes the, the limits of where I can intervene. So there's a training in mindful self-compassion that I know some of you, some of you know that was developed by um, an American, uh, Kristin Neff, who's done a lot of research on self-compassion, and Chris Germer, who's a psychologist, and both of them were long-term Dharma practitioners. And they have a formulation of what they call mindful self-compassion that I think is very helpful, that divides it into three components. The first one is mindfulness. And this is, so mindfulness recognizing that suffering is present. This is what we've been doing <laughs> a lot over the last few days. And just to flag up that suffering is a spectrum word. It's the translation of this word dukkha, which is the, the uh, territory of the Four Noble Truths, the core teachings of the Dharma. And dukkha is really unsatisfactoriness that can range from anything like the mildest unsatisfactoriness to really intense suffering. But we recognize that there's an experience of struggle, of strife, of unsatisfactoriness, of even incompleteness present. And one of the beautiful understandings of the teachings the first noble truth is that there is dukkha. There is, there is this experience. This experience is being part and parcel of being human. And so it points us to the fact that this isn't a mistake. It's not a personal failing or that something's wrong because this experience is being had. This is what it means to be a human being. We will encounter unsatisfactoriness. And in this practice, then, we learn the ability to stay present with it, uh, to be willing to turn towards and to open to it, and thereby be begin to understand the mechanics of what constellates it, what exacerbates it, how I contribute to it, how I add unnecessary suffering to, further to, to the suffering that's already there. So in staying present with it, though, um, this is something that we, we need to um, do gradually. So not, not all suffering is, is kind of handleable 
in one go. And this is a, an aspect of compassion already to recognize that, that sometimes something is too much for us to open to completely or to move towards. So we use this image of, of titration, which is you know, where you add two, two liquids together drop by drop, that if you mix them all in one go, there would be an explosion or whatever, or a massive fizz, or it's a long time since I did chemistry. Um, but you, if you gradually open towards what's difficult, or you have this, this, allow this possibility of opening and closing. So we, you know, we may be with a really powerful discomfort in the body, and sometimes it can be helpful to move towards that, to investigate that with awareness. Sometimes it's too much, and we need to back off and even distract ourselves. Sometimes distracting ourselves can be, can be helpful. So learning to know how close to come to a difficulty. But there's behind that, there's the willingness to actually, I'm willing to try to see what's possible in terms of staying present, of, of approaching this. So we work the edges, as we've been saying. Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese master, was asked how, how, how much suffering should we um, expose ourselves to in this practice? And he, and he said, not very much. <laughs> so just I mean you know we don't always it doesn't always feel like we have a choice but as we become more skilled in this and this this kind of um uh placing choosing of what we do with our attention we do have some say and actually do I turn how much do I turn towards this now and when is it wise to to back away but at least to acknowledge that there is some suffering here So that's the first, first of these three aspects is mindfulness. The second one is um, common humanity. So one of, one of the responses that we can have to our own suffering is to, to kind of tell ourselves, well, everyone, everyone suffers and there's so many people out there who have, so, have things so much worse than I do. And therefore, you know, I shouldn't be suffering. I shouldn't be making a problem of this. That's not a very compassionate response because the fact is we are suffering in the moment. Just the, f the, the fact that other people may have a much more difficult life or difficult situation than we do doesn't negate the fact that in this moment we are having an experience of suffering. But the common humanity piece more actually recognizing, recognizes that suffering is a universal human experience. Uh, this is this is the first noble truth, if you like, translated. So actually, in the recognition of that, there can be a turning outwards towards others, a kind of opening of our hearts and minds towards the rest of humanity, towards other other sentient beings, rather than that that way in which our suffering isolates us, makes us feel that we're doing something wrong. I've been reading a, a book called uh, Bereavement recently by a teacher called Frank Ostaseski and there is something he says that I find lovely. He says, it's a most beautiful and difficult thing to be human. The most beautiful and difficult thing. And I think that's so true. 
and that actually these experiences of loss and grief and suffering are like a connective tissue that joins us together. If we, if we turn our mind that way, if we, if we remember that. So again, we can, we can look and just see, well, how, how, am I, how do I conceive of myself in relation to, say, other retreatants? I think this is a fascinating thing to observe on a retreat, is the way the comparing mind gets going. You know? So I think I'm doing a bad job at my meditation, and I look around, and I, my immediate assumption is everybody's got it together much better than I have. Or you might find one or two people who clearly are struggling too and you kind of, you know, maybe you're relieved. Or, but you're still sort of, you know, you're, you're positioning yourself somehow to reassure yourself that you're okay or you're kind of making yourself trebly worse. So these are the comparing mind or what the Buddha called conceit, which is the, the mind that wants to rank ourselves somewhere. And interestingly, he said that conceit is not just the conceit of being worse than or better than but even being equal to is a form of conceit it's like i need to you know that can be another kind of protective device we have well yeah well we're, we're all you know we're all equal here yeah but the reality is our experience is going like this all the time isn't it um but just to to recognize when we suffer rather than you know comparing ourselves with how how other people might be doing. So I say, oh, this is an experience of suffering. And this is the way that self-compassion actually is different from self-esteem, which is something that is usefully taught a lot in, I think especially in America in education, but some of you might be involved in education here in ways, places where actually self-esteem is really emphasized. And it's a good thing, but it's it's a little bit dependent, isn't it, on performance, really. There's still an evaluating of how I'm doing. Whereas self-compassion is actually just that willingness to meet oneself with some kindness. It doesn't matter how we're doing. We can be a total mess and still love ourselves. As one of the, the definitions of loving kindness that I like, the descriptions of loving kindness is that from Ajahn Brahm, who's a monk who lives in Australia, and he says, well, loving kindness is not, you know, may you be happy so that I can be happy. It's like, you can be completely miserable and I'll love you anyway. And that's also a good thing to offer ourselves. You know, we, don't, we can be any which way, but can we still love ourselves when we're any which way? So that permission also to be a slow learner. So the third component, this is I've moved into the third component really of mindful self-compassion, which is the aspect of kindness. Uh, just being ourself, we are worthy of kindness. And that we, we give ourselves the permission when we find ourselves suffering to turn towards ourselves, to soothe and support ourselves in the way that we would a good friend or a child that we were caring for. And compassion actually, again, that, you know, there's so much research 
out there into compassion and the kind of um, neurobiology of compassion, not just in human beings, but in mammals and other species. And they've kind of identified that it has some core components. One of those is just the sharing of warmth. I think they've even done experiments that show that people who've had their hands immersed in warm water as opposed to cold water actually manifest kinder behavior. That's interesting. Yeah. So just that knowing we need warmth, metaphorical warmth, even physical warmth can be helpful. And the second piece, which I think is really useful to be aware of, is uh, touch or soothing touch. So I've, you know, I have said in the meditation guidance, and this is something I've become much more aware of since I picked up this self-compassion practice, is to notice where my hands are resting on the body and how they're resting on the body. And actually let that be an intentional gesture of support and this is something that you can experiment with and maybe we'll do that at some point during the retreat or you could just do that right now and if it feels a little bit funny to do that with everybody else around you you could even close your eyes and just see what it what does it feel like if you place a hand over the heart or two hands over the heart And just let yourself feel the warmth of your hand and the movement of the body underneath. And maybe if you place the other hand on the belly, We, each of us maybe will have a slightly different physiological response of what, what actually feels supportive to us. So another thing you might do is hold your arms. And you can just give yourself a mini hug. And actually, to all extents and purposes, it might look like you're just crossing your arms and nobody would know that actually what you're doing is giving yourself a hug. Yeah, or holding your own hand. So this is something you could actually do in a meeting at work and nobody would know that you were doing it. And there's this, this kind of permission we have to acknowledge, oh, this is a difficult moment and I can acknowledge that and I can respond to myself with kindness and other people don't even have to know. But this physical gesture is, is so powerful. And, the, and then the, the third component is, also, is the tone of one's voice. So lots of animals, lots of other mammals make soothing vocal noises to their young, to one another when they're in distress. And again, you know, we can't always talk to ourselves externally, but you can, you can talk internally and we can, we can bring some attention to the tone of voice that we use to one another. I noticed myself recently 
can't remember what I think it was I, I boiled over my porridge one morning you know when I was in a hurry at home and it made a mess and I just found myself saying oh you silly girl and you know a year or two ago even after many years of dharma practice I would probably have said lots of things that I can't actually repeat in here in the Dhamma talk you know and realizing oh this is something something shifted shifting in my habits of the way I talk to myself and actually it's that has an impact also I, I notice it has an impact on the way I talk to other people internally and externally as well it's like we we think that this might be just prioritizing us but it actually makes us more it's almost like that whole caring manifestation of ourselves is given more permission to come online and to um, let's feels less shy and less embarrassed about reaching out towards other people maybe some of you who are parents you've you've actually had this thrust upon you by nature and you might have noticed those changes happening in yourself but for me and not having had children it's you know this is and oh, it's really interesting to see how embedded some of our styles of relating are and how, that, how they can start to shift with this inten intentional cultivation. So there's a, there's a story that a friend of mine who teaches mindful self-compassion tells often, which I love about her. In the, in the States, uh, uh, a man who was in the supermarket and uh, there was a mother there with her maybe two or three-year-old daughter pushing her trolley around the aisles at the end of the day, filling up the trolley. And this young girl was sitting in the, probably in the child seat in the trolley. And every time they got near a shelf, she'd grab something from the shelf and throw it on the floor and was kind of generally having a tantrum. And the mother was pushing around this trolley around the different aisles and the chap was following he was just happened to be sort of you know going around the supermarket in the same trajectory and he would hear every so often she'd go there there monica we're nearly home and then we can rest and have tea and she'd go around and there 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 monica it's okay we're nearly home and this went on for several hours and then they got to the checkout and he found himself in the queue behind the woman and the daughter and then he thought oh you know I, I want to be friendly here and and he he said to the mother oh Monica's a, a sweet girl isn't she she's just very she's you know she she looks very lively or something and the mother goes she's not Monica I am <laughs> oh, that's so sweet <laughs> uh. So let's give ourselves permission to relate to ourselves in this ways, even if we're austere, wisdom-focused, non-self-dharma practitioners. Yeah. Um, so just to, to flag up, you know, maybe there's, so, you know, what are the, why, why don't we do this? If it's so kind of obvious, why don't we do it? And some of the, the obstacles I think that come in our way are common misconceptions and misunderstandings uh, that we have about 
what self-compassion or even this has come up actually in conversations with people about you know the practice that we're doing here it does it just get itself into the territory of self-absorption and actually the the job of mindfulness in meeting experience in meeting difficult emotions is actually to help contain and hold them rather than get sucked in and absorbed into them so this is an image for mindfulness that I love that I think comes from Ajahn Suchito where he says it's, it's you're holding experience. Um, it's like, like you were holding experience in your hands in the way that you would hold a small bird that you didn't want to frighten, but you didn't want to let it escape. So you just very tenderly, gently uh, and lightly just holding this experience in your hands just long enough that you can really feel it get familiar with it yeah, but we're not really absorbing into it plunging into it and we're not losing our connection with the wider perspective around it so we're holding difficult emotions with care rather than imploding or rather than repressing them which is when we kind of squish them down or not don't want to know that they're there. And we're also not erupting into them or getting, you know, um, expressing them in ways that are going to um, have repercussions for us later. It's also, you know, people can, we can feel that too much focus on self-compassion is, is selfish, that it, you know, we see people doing this as like, okay, I've decided I need to look up, take care of myself, prioritize my needs, and therefore I'm going to trample on other people's needs in order to get that done. And that's not what this invitation is about, because what we're doing is we're bringing ourselves into equality with others or into as being as worthy of consideration as others. And sometimes it can feel like a weakness. It's very interesting if you teach a mindful self-compassion course that... Generally speaking, a lot more women sign up for it than men do. And I think there are real cultural stereotypes imposed on us around, you know, what it means to use the L word and to exhibit some of these qualities. And that's a real, that's a real source of, of dukkha for, for all of us. Yeah, but actually, compassion makes us more resilient and it's not a sign of weakness. And again, there's research that shows that people who have higher self-compassion ratings, and I can't explain to you exactly how they measure them, you know, cope much better with stressful life circumstances. It's also not self-indulgent. So we, yes, we can bring it forth on retreat to justify all kinds of like, yeah, kind of it's a nap all afternoon. And, and, and you know, there's a, again, there's a wise balance to be had here. But actually, if you think of it, it's like the way that Jana was talking about training the puppy or the way that we'd look after a child. We don't give it everything it wants because we know that that's not in its real long-term interest. So similarly, you know, with ourselves, actually one often a very self-compassionate thing to do can be to cultivate the quality of renunciation uh, so that we get off this kind of treadmill of endlessly searching for gratification. 
sometimes we think if we're, if we're too self-compassionate, that's going to sap our motivation to do stuff. Yeah. And I don't think that's true. I think um, Yana's talk last night was actually a really powerful illustration of that. Actually, there's a real sense of empowerment that comes through being um, confident, uh, mindful, confident, and kind of authentic, kind, kind and authentic enough to actually align with, to actually take care to see is what we're doing aligned with our core values. You know, this is, a set, uh, this is an expression again of self-compassion. And actually out of that, a real steady, a powerful sense of motivation can come. And if you think of when you've, you've been set a task or if you've set yourself a task and maybe, you know, teachers that you've had at, at school or in the past who've actually inspired you to do well, they're not usually the teachers who were the kind of famous ones for being mean. You know, it's usually somebody who's been very kind, understanding, encouraging of you, somebody who's really seen you and drawn the best out in you. And we can do this, you know, this is how we motivate ourselves as well. And also, um, you know, one of the things that can happen when we start softening the heart and cultivating compassion towards ourselves is that we feel worse before we feel better. It's like we, we're allowing ourselves to contact painful and difficult emotions and that can be, that can be hard. So again, in a mindful self-compassion training, they talk about it like as backdraft, which is what happens when firefighters tackle a fire. If you, if you open the door suddenly on a burning room and you let in a lot of oxygen, there'll be a vroom and the whole thing will you know, uh, start burning more vigorously. And it's a bit like that when we open the heart, when we turn towards difficulty. Uh, it can actually feel like things are getting worse. But this is part of the healing process. And then we bring to that that kind of skill that we begin to learn about, actually, I can approach this slowly in increments. So it's the way that we might kind of slowly open the door to an unknown visitor. We might just like kind of peek out through our little spy hole first and then and maybe we'd think about opening the door and maybe the next time they come round we might actually have two words of conversation with them on the doorstep. And uh, after a few visits we might invite them in and talk to them. But we can take our time. So I found it really helpful to put a frame around this idea of self-compassion to actually really look at, right? You know, and I'm, it's, this is ongoing practice for me um, to look at this question of how do we talk to ourselves. And it's amazing how we catch ourselves again and again. Oh, there I go. Yeah. Um, just being harsh or kind of talking to ourselves in a way that we wouldn't talk talk to a friend. So there are these three components, mindfulness, common humanity and kindness. 
there's a, um, a practice that gets taught called the self-compassion break, which actually just is, takes us through these three steps. So, th so something difficult is happening and we recognize it. There's an, a kind of ouch moment. There's mindfulness coming into play. And then a recognition, oh yeah, this is an experience of suffering. A connection with the common humanity of it, the universality of it. And then they're saying, oh, I can respond with kindness. Maybe I can talk to myself in a supportive way. Maybe actually it's a situation where some soothing touch is appropriate. Another way we can name this is as loving connected presence. So presence is the mindfulness component, loving is the kindness component, connected is the recognition of our common humanity and our interdependence. And these three things are the opposite of this fight-flight-freeze response, which when it goes inwards is actually, you know, the, the fight would be self-criticism, flight is that sense of isolation, cutting ourselves off from everyone, and freezing is the self-absorption or the implosion. So, you know, practices I hope like the, the one that I offered this afternoon can also help with that to, to help um, sow the habit of an orientation to kindness in the mind. And also that one this afternoon to help us. And, and we've, we've, we've named and invited that in different ways over the last couple of days. Like this reflection, yeah, and I made even on the first evening, that we're not just doing this for ourselves, to remember that. Maybe in a moment of difficulty when we're here, that's a helpful thing to actually remember, to intentionally turn out towards others. Say, I, I, you know, I wish everybody well in this process. I, I you know, wish this be a benefit for others. That can give some energy, some courage, some power to actually our ability to be with difficulty. And then to bring yourself a lot of respect and appreciation for your efforts. So I think this, this whole, really when I had the idea about the theme for this retreat, I was thinking a lot about the, the quality of self-respect, how we can't practice without that. And actually the, the Buddha invited, he, sa he said, you should reflect often on your own virtue, on your own generosity. You know, and we think, we tend to think that that's self-inflating, but it's not. It's actually kind of naming things where they are true and empowering what's good in us. This is a, that's, a, that's an offering into the practice rather than a self-inflating thing. So when we encourage you to do that at the end of the evening or whenever we do, just do it wholeheartedly. I know it's not easy sometimes. So I'm just going to end by reading a poem which is probably very familiar to some of you, which is Wild Geese by Mary Oliver. You do not have to be good. 
You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clear blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. So let's just take a moment of silence together. Thank you for your attention and we'll take um, maybe 20 minutes for some walking meditation. So if we can have a bell at 10.2 and then we'll come back for a short practice to end the evening together. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.